This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. It is August. It is the Equalizer podcast. This is Dan Lawletta. I'm with John Halloran for this week's edition of the podcast as we go back to the weekly format. The NWSL Challenge Cup is over, and we are now in a position, well, well, we don't know when the next soccer is going to be played, so we're going to have to start uh, going back to what we did before the Challenge Cup. Maybe we'll review some old-time women's soccer historical events maybe we will have some news breaking from time to time we might have some fun with an expansion draft a mock expansion draft or some other items uh, but we're going to be here every week rotating cast of characters will be coming in and out uh, but john did you are you suitably rested after uh, the challenge cup which uh, seemed like it took a lot more out of us than it probably should have considering we were mostly just sitting in front of computers yeah, no, it was definitely nice to uh, break away from that schedule a little bit this week. All right, so, you know, we were on after every game, and we were giving a lot of, I guess, hot takes on the teams and what was going on in the tournament. Um, just wondering, as we come out of it now, and it's been a week, and it really is unbelievable, I think, how the, um, you know, everything plateaus so quickly when it ends. Uh, but w- did you ha- anything stand out to you that when you took a step back, from the tournament, uh, you know, should have been more obvious as it was happening, but maybe wasn't, and uh, that you thought of in the week without, you know, watching the games and stuff? I did see some interesting possession stats uh, regarding Houston this week that I thought made me kind of reflect on how, because, again, this is, I know this is something you joke about all the time, about why coaches don't come into into jobs and say, you know, we're just going to play direct and, um, you know, because everybody wants to play the attractive, aesthetically pleasing possession right. style football. But Houston had those. It was it was either the worst or right at the bot near the bottom possession statistics the entire tournament. And they showed obviously how that can be successful. I thought that um, you know we obviously all well maybe not everybody but most of us were pretty happy for Houston. That's obviously a great story for them. This is a team that you know, had never made the playoffs and goes on to win this this cup. And after years and years and years of kind of retooling every offseason and coaching changes and roster changes, and they finally got it. And um, so that's a great story. But again, looking at how they maximized what they did have, how they were able to, you know, take um, those players that they had and come up with a, with a winning tactical approach, this idea of, you know, creating really smart pressing triggers, sitting back, letting other teams play around a little bit, and then picking the right moments to try to disrupt that. We saw that, I thought, really against Portland in that semifinal round that they just let Portland have the ball in certain areas of the field, but didn't let them do anything productive with it. 
And um, when you look at those numbers, it really kind of backs up that approach. And they just took a group of really competitive players and some players who had chips on their shoulders and their defense was improved and kind of melded Clarkson kind of melded all of that into this winning strategy. Was it after that game where Clarkson said we felt in control of the game when we had the ball and we felt in control of the game when we didn't have the ball? I don't remember which game, but I do remember him saying that. And I think that it's probably true for most of the tournament for them. Yeah, I, you know, I was especially impressed. You know, that first game was so weird because they started off like nobody told them the tournament was starting. And that went mm-hmm. on for like 20 minutes. And then they dominated like an hour's worth of that game. And then some defensive lapses and the Royals woke up and it was 3-3. And nothing out of that game said to me the Dash are going to be disciplined enough to go through and win this tournament. But they did so many really good things in that middle period of that game, like Christy Mewis winning balls in midfield. And not just winning balls, you know, like we talk about all these defensive midfielders and we call, you know, like Desiree Scott is the destroyer. And we have other names for different defensive midfielders. But oftentimes you see players win the ball and that's great, like a nice tackle, nice win on the ball. But then what do they do? They give the possession up. And I thought Mewis was winning balls and actually doing things productive with it and you know even you look at that first goal that Mewis helped create in the final you know possession wise that was probably what four or five seconds worth of possession when they finally got the ball but they made the most of it and then boom they get the uh you know the counterattack and the penalty and all of a sudden they're ahead one to nothing so you know I was impressed you know I think we have to be honest with ourselves it was seven games and they didn't even win all their knockout games they had to go to penalties and survive Utah again, 0-0, which was obviously a much different game. But, uh, you know, the tournament called for seven games, so that's what they gave us. You know, who knows what would have happened. You know, I was thinking about that D.C. United team, 2013, I think. They won the Open Cup in their regular season. They won three out of 34. Um, You know, I'm not suggesting the Dash would have been that poor, but, you know, I think think we should stop short in thinking that when we get back in April, the Dash are going to be one of the top teams in the league. But maybe the, just the confidence they take out of this will help them bridge some of that subtle gap between being an okay team and a, and a pretty good team. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that first game because I do remember, they, you know, until they got to the hydration break, they weren't playing very well. And then that was when they really started to put some pressure, win balls in dangerous areas. And it also made me think that it's kind of ironic when you look at how the tournament started, the two teams that probably started the tournament the worst were in the final at the end. So, um, you know, obviously how you finish, not how you start. But the other thing that you mentioned about, you know, how does this work over 24 games? I think that's an interesting question. And I've gone back and forth on this because on the one hand, I thought kind of like what you were saying, this is only a seven game tournament. Can you really keep this type of a strategy going over over 24 games or are people going to figure out ways to break it down but on the other hand this is a type of strategy that requires an incredible work rate and incredible fitness base and i almost think that you spread this out over 24 games it might even be in some respects a little bit easier because your players are able to rest a little bit more Um, obviously this was a super condensed schedule and the type of soccer that they were playing can be a rather exhausting type of soccer to play when you're chasing the ball a lot. Um, So, you know, in some respects, it might end up working out better over the course uh, of a longer season. And at the same time, I don't think I would jump in and say, you know, the Dash are the favorites in in 2021. And it's it's ironic because Clarkson talked right before the final game about how 
he felt like their team still wasn't respected. And, you know, if, if they want to take what I'm saying as, as part of that, you know, I, I guess that's, that's fine. But, you know, again, I, I don't think they would necessarily be the favorites heading into a 2021. I think they're also going to need some depth if they're going to compete yep. over a long season, because I think Rachel Daly is spectacular. I wrote in a column after the tournament that I hope the NWSL recognizes that and markets her to some extent, because I think she is a, a great personality to have as one of the centerpieces of your league. And I think she's become, I think she came into the league a very good player and is now bordering on being a great player. But if you lose her from the lineup, you know, who's going to score the goals? And yeah, they yeah. did, you know, they did win the final where Mewis came out at about the 30 minute mark, but they did miss her. Yeah, CC Kaiser came in and played very well in place of Megan Oyster in the semifinal, but I don't know that they're a team that can withstand a lot of injuries and absences and whatnot. So I do think depth will be an issue. But I, you know what? I think this will make it easier for them to attract players who want to be there. Absolutely. That's probably the single biggest thing that came out of this tournament is that they're not going to be, you know, the way station for for players that are shuttled around the league anymore. That there are going to be players who say, yeah, you know, I'm in. I'll take a shot. Let's go down there and see if I can help add to what they've already done. And you know what else is interesting, too, is that we give a lot of criticism to clubs that hire coaches like James Clarkson and Richie Burke. Because let's be honest, those were not hires that necessarily had the resumes of coaches that you would think would slot into the women's pro game and succeed. And there was also a lot of criticism because A, they're not women and B, they didn't really coach women. But you know what? They've actually both done a pretty good job. Clarkson has his trophy. And, you know, I think if you were going to rate teams just on how they played throughout the tournament, I still put Washington second behind North Carolina and then they went into that quarterfinal where I do think they were the better team. They didn't have Lavelle and they didn't have Sullivan. So it's hard to really put a too harsh a judgment on that 0-0 penalty kick loss. But, you know, those guys, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, they have made a name for your, you know, boys coaches who just happen to be around and available because they've both done a pretty good job. Well, and they were youth coaches, too, which yep. is fascinating to me because that's I think part of the what you were referring to where people felt their hires were almost a level of disrespect uh, towards the women's game that the you know the owners who made those decisions thought oh I'm just going to go grab some boys youth coach and that'll be good enough but you're right that they've proven to be um, good coaches for their respective teams and the other team that I think kind of flew under the radar because of the way they got knocked out of the tournament was Utah. I thought that um, Harrington came in with that three back and, and used his personnel really smartly. And, you know, yeah, he was an assistant in Chicago for a couple of years, but his background before that was as a youth coach with the LA galaxy. Yeah. And I, you know what, you know, he, he actually, you know, you mentioned he was the assistant in Chicago. So that, I think that's the path. Yeah. That most people want to see, you know, yeah. earn your stripes to some extent. He was also an assistant on a very good team. I think he did a really good job. You look on paper, that team, that's the worst team in the league, right? Take Orlando out of the mix since they weren't at the tournament. I mean, 1-11, to 1-18, to 18, Royals are the worst team in on, in this tournament, right? They they might have been. Um, you know, that's, it's a funny question because I think 
if you had asked me, and this is probably before we knew who was going to play and who wasn't going to play, but I probably would have pegged them to finish sixth. Um, and I think if I power rank the teams here in the tournament, um, I might have them a little higher. The other one, though, is like, I think we should admit that Portland overachieved. I, I think maybe that doesn't fit in our collective understanding because we imagine Portland as one of the top two teams perennially, but that was not a top two roster that went into that tournament. I think they way overperformed the talent that they brought in. Just going to say, I don't want too many people to hit the unsubscribe button here, but (laughs) I don't think Portland was very good at all. And I didn't like the narrative in that going into that quarterfinal, that it was a quote unquote clash of the Titans. I thought it was the best team against the worst team, to be honest. And, yeah, the upset happened, but it was that. It was a monumental upset in that quarterfinal game. And I agree. I did not think Portland was very good. I think they got the most out of what they were doing. Yes, 100%. But I don't think they were very good at well, all. That's, yeah, because – and, again, this is meant to be a compliment that I think they overachieved based on the yes. talent that they had available. I mean, Lindsey Horan was at times – walking wounded you know you weren't even sure if she was going to play um and she got knocked around a fair bit obviously tobin wasn't there sauerbrunn played one game um so they you know they they went into the tournament without french and obviously got two unbelievable performances from their backup goalkeepers but this is a team that went into this tournament missing some of their big big names and still got some results that uh turned some people's heads and I like what Morgan Weaver did, especially considering she didn't have a lot of help up top. I don't know that you, I could name five players who were better at the end of the tournament than they were at the start. And I think Morgan Weaver's on that short list. You know, because players were spent by the yeah. quarterfinal stage. And they were. I thought Weaver got better. She didn't play major minutes, but she played enough minutes, and I thought she was getting better. So I think that speaks well to her. All right, how about the, um, you, you know, we talked last year, we did the pot after the final in North Carolina, and uh, you were talking about our teams needed to kind of make drastic tactical changes in order to beat North Carolina. Yep. And I feel like that narrative went missing in this event because it didn't happen. Right. Yet they lost anyway. So what, what, you know, like what, what are your thoughts tactically on the courage not being there? And the, the well, I, I still think the exact same thing because – Again, I don't have the numbers sitting in front of me, but I remember Dabinia missing three or four great chances in that game or Eckerstrom just making amazing saves. I remember Lynn Williams having three or four great chances in that game. Um, and this was also a game, if, if we can be honest, that Crystal Dunn was exceptionally quiet in. All so, tournament, no? Yeah, so, I mean, if if you're looking, and this is why – Again, if Houston wants to take this as disrespect, that's fine. I still think North Carolina is far and away the favorite heading into 2021. Now, the expansion draft might change that because, obviously, uh, as we think the rules will be set, that North Carolina is probably going to lose one of their national team players or have to trade away uh, other big key players of their team to prevent that from happening. So one way or another – there's going to be a chunk of the courage uh, likely missing in 2021. But I still think that because of the talent that they will have, because of the tactics that they use, because nobody has really adapted. I think we saw teams 
fiddle a little bit. We saw Chicago in the second half tinker around a little bit and try to match their box, which I don't think is the way to go. But it did seem that there was some thought to try something different. The, the one team that I um, thought took the, the clearest step towards challenging uh, North Carolina was Washington, where Washington decided to just hold possession in their defensive third and not just in a normal working around the back, but if you look, and, and I wrote something about this with some screenshots on the site, if you looked at how deep, I mean, they literally were playing their center backs um, as wide as the 18 and almost all the way back on the end line, just trying to almost pull North Carolina in and make North Carolina chase and kind of use North Carolina's press against them in a way and tire them out. And I think that strategy, uh, even though we didn't see it work in this case, I think there's a potential that that might work. Um, and then beyond that, somebody's going to have to try something different because I do still think that, that they're the best team in the league from top to bottom. Yeah, I agree with all that. Uh, their roster turnover is a good segue into segment two because it appears that Sam U.S. is headed to Manchester City. So we'll talk about that possibility that some other national team players are going to go overseas, plus a little bit about expansion, just a little bit uh, general about what happens next in Woso now that the NWSL Challenge Cup is over. With John, this is Dan, and you're listening to the Equalizer podcast. What's up, everybody? Jeff Kasouf here, founder of the Equalizer. I want to make sure that you know we also have another podcast called Kicking Back, which is interview-based. We talk to players, coaches, personalities from across women's soccer about defining moments in their career and some important things from the present day and look ahead a little bit to the future. We've had guests like Crystal Dunn, Becky Sauerbrunn, Jill Ellis, Bev Yanez, Ali Riley, Julie Foudy and Mia Hamm, so many already and many more to come. So please go ahead and check out Kicking Back Pod on any platform you find your podcast after, of course, you've finished up with this episode of the Equalizer podcast. Back on the Equalizer podcast with a reminder to please check out our content on the web at equalizersoccer.com for premium content, equalizersoccer.com slash subscribe. And if you like what you hear on the podcast, please rate and review the Equalizer podcast today. I'm Dan. We've got John with me, but we will have uh, the regular voices that you heard throughout the NWSL Challenge Cup will be rotating in and out over the next weeks and months as we kind of navigate the path forward for ourselves the same way NWSL is doing. And John, in talking about the North Carolina roster turnover, our friend Meg Linehan, uh, who's doing great work for The Athletic now, reported that Sam Mewis is on her way to Manchester City and that Rose Lavelle is also mulling over an offer to go to Manchester City. And every time this happens, uh, there's a large contingent that, you know, thinks the world is caving in on NWSL. I don't think that at all, even though there's nothing I want less than Sam Mewis and Rose Lavelle being elsewhere when next season starts. But what, what's your take on a potential, you know, Mewis to Man City, and not specifically to Man City, but just the generality of a player like her leaving the league. We, what I think is ironic about this is that this is typically the year that national team players go abroad for a year. It's, it's right after the Olympics. Now, obviously, the Olympics didn't happen and probably are going to happen next summer, so that throws the timetable a bit, but it's usually that year after the Olympics 
that you see some of the big name national team players go abroad because they can make a lot more money if we're being honest. I don't, I don't know what the numbers are exactly like now, but I do know that uh, a few years ago when Rapino went over there, there were reports that she was making $30,000 a month. Uh, so I'm not going to begrudge anybody going over there and picking up a nice uh, payday. And if you're a U.S. national team player, you know, teams like Lyon or, or Paris Saint-Germain, Man City, uh, there's probably a few others that will Chelsea will throw out a, a big paycheck. So I think that's one consideration. And the other one is that, listen, aside from a friendly or two or maybe a small tournament that we might see, we're probably not going to see any regular NWSL action until next March. And these players need to do something to stay sharp and stay on their game. They can't just take, uh, you know, an eight-month break right now. Yeah, and, you know, specific to Mewis, I find it interesting because uh, you always go back to her comments on the field after the 2017 final. Mm -hmm and believe that that kind of set the tone for how good the courage became in 18 and 19. I think it's fascinating that now that they've lost again, that instead of making a comment like that and thinking, well, I've got to get back and help the courage get back to the top, she's now in a different place and maybe is going to go over to England. Now, it's supposedly a loan deal or, well, not a loan because she's not actually under contract anywhere, but it's supposedly a one-year thing. So the expectation, I believe, is that she would be back in North Carolina maybe after the Olympics next summer. But I think it's interesting because I don't begrudge anybody an opportunity to make more money, improve their game, whatever. Players should do whatever they want. But I think it's interesting in her particular case that they have something so special in North Carolina that it is interesting that she would opt to remove herself from that situation. Again, yeah, we don't know. to her. And loans end early too sometimes. So we don't, True. you know, we have no idea what's going to happen, uh, with that. And the other thing that obviously she's going to have to take into account is, uh, you know, how this all fits in with Vlatko's plans and what he plans and what U.S. soccer plans in terms of having a camp this winter or a camp in the spring. Because obviously the U.S. players are going to have to get back into form after they've all had a long break. Look, I mean, even the players who played in this tournament have now played seven games since March. That's not great. That's seven no. games over four months. And some of them, you know, the whatever it was, 10 players or so who uh, either opted not to play in this tournament or didn't play in this tournament because they were hurt, have played zero games in the last four months. And so these are players. Listen, this is an Olympic year, right? So you're going to take 23 players because none of them have retired. And the only one who looked like she might be out was Morgan. Now she's got an extra year to recover um, right. after her pregnancy. You got 23 players who are fighting for those roster spots. So Vlaco's job was already going to be tough. Um, those players now have to make sure that they're keeping themselves in a place where they can fight for those spots. And obviously that's giving more time to some of these younger players especially ones who maybe stood out in the Challenge Cup to, to kind of state their case. We know that Vlatko was there watching all of those games. So there's these factors of these players. On the one hand, they need to stay accessible for U.S. camps in the United States. On the other hand, they almost have to go overseas to play because, listen, I, I hate to break it to anybody, but this country's not going back to normal for at least another four months at and, a minimum. 
Absolutely. And names that are not included in the list that you just gave, Lynn Williams, Andy Sullivan, yep. who is hurt yep. now, so maybe that's not a factor. And I had a third one that is slipping my mind at the moment, but there are players, oh, Casey Short, you know, those are players that weren't at the World Cup that are definitely big yep. factors. And it's funny because every January is the time where we always say, can't Becky Sauerbrunn get a camp off? And let her rest a little bit. Can't, yeah. you know, Megan Rapino get a camp off and let her rest a little bit. All of a sudden, if next thing we do here is January camp, nobody's going to want to rest. Nobody's going to need to rest. That could be the right. most intense camp in the history of the national team. Yeah. With everybody just cooped up and not really playing any soccer. And you also have to wonder, you know, play, you know, people like Carly Lloyd just say, well, I'm going to play in the next World Cup and Olympics and I, I just keep getting better. But that, that's not how the human body works. You know, who is to say that Carly Lloyd will still be effective when she comes out of this? Who is to say that Rapino and Heath will still be effective when they come out of this in their mid-30s, both in those last two, both with histories of injuries? So, you know, I think the national team could be in an unprecedented state of flux going forward. Now, that being said, the roster for the Olympics will probably be as predictable as it gets. But I think you could really see a lot of things change with this long period of inactivity. I think you could see the U.S. lose its edge, too, as a group over, you know, countries where they are going to be back to regular club soccer a lot faster than the U.S. is. There is no question about that. Um, how, what, are, what are your thoughts on expansion? We kind of glossed over expansion a little bit, but Angel City, which is Los Angeles, came yep. in and kind of loudly. But uh, we had so much going on, we didn't get to talk about it too much. I'm on record as saying I think it has a chance to be maybe the most positive development in, since the league launched. But what are your thoughts right off the bat? Well, you're obviously getting into a major market, which is huge. You're coming into it with a ton of star power in terms of their ownership. So there's going to be a massive ability, especially in today's age of social media, for them to be able to create, uh, you know, this this groundswell of, of popular support. Uh, listen, you would – be able to speak to this better than me because I know you follow a lot more sports than I do, but I do know that Los Angeles as a city has a reputation for often not necessarily supporting teams um, and get, you know, actually getting, you know, people to come out to the stadium to, to watch teams. So I don't know, you know, how true that might be, but I also know that, you know, and we've talked about this uh, before that this is an area of the country that has produced a massive amount of talent for the U.S. national team, and it is not going to be surprising at all if some of the biggest names want to go play there. And if that happens, and if the ownership group creates a, a great club environment there, those two factors together are probably going to, in a very short period of time, turn this into a destination like Portland, whereas you will now have perhaps the most desirable destination uh, for top-tier players to want to go to. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have success. We've seen teams try to build, you know, star power teams before that have failed. But it does mean that in terms of players, especially those big-name players wanting to go there, I think that you could see a shift in the gravitational pull of the league. Yeah, and, you know, in terms of L.A. supporting teams, I feel like they support winning popular yeah. teams, and yeah. I feel like they it's a soccer-mad 
city. I remember being out there in the days when Chivas USA existed and actually hearing people have conversations like Galaxy or Chivas. Yeah. Like it actually mattered. Whereas I live in New York and it's a city where there are two soccer teams and I'm hard pressed to find anybody who even knows there are two soccer teams <laughs> or cares that there are two soccer teams. So, you know, I think there's just tons of potential. If they can play all their cards right, because they've got a decent amount of money behind this thing, if they can figure out who's in charge, because you can't have all these people in charge. And obviously, a lot of those names, especially the former players, are in there with, I'm sure, very minor investment, and they're in there to help prop up the team visibly. But if they can do that effectively and they can get the right people in charge, I don't think they'll have any problem getting a good staff. I don't think they'll have any problem getting players. Uh, you know, they, there are a number of nice places to play in the city. I think it could be an absolute game changer for the league. And it's the sort of team that even if they're not successful on the field, I don't think that will hurt them as much as some other teams. You know, when, you know, if Sky Blue comes out next season and they're terrible on the field, automatically, everyone's going to pile on them. If the thorns are not good on the field, they'll get criticized for it, but it won't, I don't think it will diminish the desire for people outside the league to want to be there, or even for people inside the league to want to be there. And I think LA should have that on their side for a while. Yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, the first game that David Beckham came to Toyota Park and how mad it was to get into that stadium that day. That that's what it'll be like if they put together a star-studded team where not only are they, you know, a big deal in their hometown, but they're a big deal on the road. And obviously this is 100% speculation, but if a player like Alex Morgan goes and plays for L.A., that creates a draw just like it does now with Orlando. I did a, a spreadsheet uh, a couple of years ago where it, it showed that almost every single team outside of Portland – almost every single team's highest attended home game was when Orlando came to town because whether it's Morgan or Krieger or Harris, there are, there's a significant chunk of fans that want to see certain players and they will come out when those players are in their home market, whether that's sky blue or North Carolina or Washington or wherever. Now there's another expansion team too. Louisville is coming in. They seem to be doing, the right things. I think it'll take something a little more special to make Louisville a destination city. And I think they're kind of getting the short end of it now because of where they are and they're coming into the league with COVID and everything else. Let me ask you this. Nobody knows what the deal is with Sam Mewis and the protected list, because if she's not part of the courage roster because she's at man city, she's still on the allocated list because I'm pretty sure the expansion draft will happen before the, New allocations come out, but does she have to be protected? But more to the point, if you're Louisville and she's unprotected, do you take her? Well, this is this is so funny because this is just like where the NWSL creates a rule, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is like this is like when they created the special rule to get Mallory Pugh into the league, and then she didn't come into the league, or yeah. um, you know, or you could even have a situation where. You know, the example of of this, which is probably the most famous, is when, um, you know, Houston and and Sky Blue and Chicago made that massive deal and and Kristen Press ended up going to Houston, at least her rights. And then, of course, she didn't end up going there. And then they had to trade her rights uh, to Utah to get her back into the league. So through Chicago, remember. Right. So so you could 100 percent, whether that's Mewis or any other player. 
in this. And in fact, I suppose if you really wanted to be, you know, um, sly and, and maybe take that type of a chance, if you had a player who you absolutely 100% knew was not going to Louisville, maybe you leave that player off your protected list um, just because, you know, you kind of dare Louisville to, to take them. And then maybe they trade the rights back to you for somebody else, or maybe you just try to leverage that because we still know that national team players in this league have a lot of power in determining their destination. It's not an absolute power. They don't get to dictate it. But we know that coaches freely speak about this, that even they will try to move a player if that player tells them that they don't really want to be in that market anymore. Um, so you could have that type of situation here. You know, I think that happened in MLS. And ironically, I think it happened with Brian Ching, who later became the managing director of the dash, I believe it was the impact. And he said he wasn't going to Montreal and he was very late in his career. So the dynamo left him unprotected and the impact said, we're taking you. <laughs> and there yeah. was a pretty big impasse and they wound up making a small trade and sending him back to Houston. I think is how that all got resolved. Um, but would, would you take, if you were Louisville right now and Mewis was out there, but at Manchester city, would you take her and wait for her? I mean, if you knew she was coming, absolutely. I mean, if you were going to build, we, we've had this discussion. We had this when we were filling the massive void before the Challenge Cup. We had this discussion about who you'd build a team around. And I think the three that I came down to where I honestly couldn't make a decision were Mewis, Haran, and Ertz. And I think I went with Haran at the time. But, you know, I'd be happy happy as a pig if I had Sam Mewis to start a team with because she's as good as they get. I totally agree, but I feel like drafting a player and waiting for them can just – I feel like that's the sort of thing that your team can get buried underneath. Well, you're only like, – you, yeah, I mean, what are you waiting, though, three months? If you're talking about after – I guess the Olympics are August, so maybe you're waiting till September. So, yeah, I mean, maybe you go the first season without your big marquee player. I mean, if you absolutely knew she was coming back and was going to be all in on your team – then that's fine. But you would be then be asking a brand new coach to build a team and it's a, and she's a central midfielder. So it's not like, you know, it's not like getting Casey short where you just find somebody else to play outside back and then you right. plug in Casey short and she gets that much better. You're basically going to build your team with this new coach and all these new players around a midfield that doesn't have the player you expect to be the best player, you know, and maybe that's, maybe I've got it wrong because, you know, probably an expansion team is not going to have a great midfield. You're going to add somebody down the road. I, I don't know. I just, I wonder if part of this arrangement, I wonder if, you know, Paul Riley's snickering somewhere saying, this is how I'm going to keep all my national team players. Well, honestly, on the team. I listen, you're probably the only person who's had this thought, but, um, it is an interesting conspiracy you bring up that there there is the potential that she doesn't somehow apply to the, you know, the lists now that she's not. I, however, the contract or loan is drafted that that somehow the courage can get away with not having to use one of their protected spots now. And I remember something Jeff Plush said, and this was years ago in the league is, you know, more 10 times over since then, but he said every expansion is a different negotiation, which kind of meant that, you know, don't expect because Orlando had the number one pick that Louisville gets the number one pick. And right. don't expect because they got to pick two players of every team that the next team will get to pick two players of every team. So, you know, when they, you're right, they come up with these rules like players on loan have to be protected and international players 
have to be protected or players on multi-year deals. So, hey, how about, you know, allocated players on loan, you know, have to be protected, but maybe don't count toward only protecting two U.S. allocated players. Who, who knows how it's going to go down? Discovery, but I think, yeah, what happens with yeah. discovery players? Discovery players. Right, because at one time there was this, they were uh, protected like Discovery 1 and Discovery 2, and then I think there was like a slip-up on a conference call that was public, and we got one of the names of the players that was actually on a Discovery list, and it was a it was a whole big bad. And you know what? I don't blame them because it's in the league's best interest to make this work, to make it as likely as possible that Sam Mewis comes back into the NWSL. Sure, sure. Right? Absolutely. You know, the, the one you didn't mention, too, was Houston coming into the league and getting the number two pick. Right. <laughs> but you know what? It's just so bizarre. But that was completely fair, I thought, because they didn't get injured into the league until December. Right. The spirit had been last, and the number one pick that year was Crystal Dunn and nobody else. Now, you know, regardless of how that draft turned out, because Ertz was in that draft, that was the number one pick. So I thought it would have been unfair for them to come in and bump the spirit, uh, spirit out of the number one pick and be able to take Crystal Dunn. Well, and then uh, Utah got the double the double pick, right? Well, they got the number one pick the following year. The fo- right, but it came and that was on. That was in addition, though, to their number one pick, wasn't it? Or did that just no. become their number one pick? No, that they that just became the number one okay. pick. And then they wound up trading it to get press. Right. That's when the Red right. Stars got Davidson. Right. And they, but they were also like, you know, their roster was, I know there were legal things, but they were basically FC Kansas City continued. Right. So I don't know how fair it was that they got that number one pick, but I'll tell you what, they haven't done so well with it because they've been two years now. They haven't been in the postseason, so. Who knows? All right. I think we have done enough damage for one week <laughs> after the NWSL Challenge Cup. Uh, good to know we still have some soccer to talk about. Uh, we're going to get as creative as possible. Uh, we can bring back the EQZ pod hashtag. So if you have any thoughts, ideas for uh, what we might talk about on future pods, please send us our, send them our way. But we've got some ideas already in the hopper. And like I said, rotating cast of characters will be here, but uh, for the week after, John, thanks for not falling off the map on me so quickly after the Challenge Cup ended. Uh, I will uh, catch up with you soon. For John Halloran, my name is Dan Laletta, and you've been listening to the Equalizer Podcast. 